From Romans chapter 12, we are continuing this morning our study of spiritual gifts. Because Paul tells us, as he begins to make applicable the practice of the Christian life based on all the teaching that has gone in chapters 1 through 11, he tells us that the Holy Spirit, that God has given to us gifts that we might serve the body. And he gives us an example of some of those gifts in Romans 12. We have expanded that to consider all of the gifts that we find in the New Testament so that we could take this occasion to study the gifting that the Holy Spirit brings to the church. And so this morning, we're actually going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, not Romans 12, but 1 Corinthians 12, as we follow up with this gift blend or a list of gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to the church. And uh, I want to ask you to do one thing, to open your study guide and find the page that says Gifts of the Holy Spirit, Part 2. There's actually Part 1, Part 2, Part 3, and Part 4. If you'll find the one that says Gifts of the Holy Spirit, Part 2, begins with Word of Wisdom in the upper left column. That's where we're going to start. Let me tell you just a little bit about Parts 3 and 4. They take the same 17 gifts on this sheet, 3 and 4, and they list, list some ministries or uses where you might find the gift in operation. And in the far right column of that page, it talks about the natural abilities that are often mistaken for spiritual gifts. And uh, you may want to study that on your own at home. Uh, this morning we're only going to concern ourselves with the page that says Gifts of the Holy Spirit Part 2. And I may as well tell you now, I only got through two of them in the 8 o'clock service. <laughs> so we'll be back here next Sunday. Uh, I'm probably only going to get through two of them this morning, so we stay together. But uh, it's important that we do understand what we're talking about. Now, last Sunday, we considered service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy, helps, and administration. And almost everyone can relate to those gifts. Now, I have tried to underscore repeatedly that spiritual gifts are supernatural. And if you have the gift of teaching, it's not because you have a degree in education uh, and, and do well in, in teaching. It's because in the church, the Holy Spirit has anointed you with His power to teach. And you may be a professional teacher, and God uses that talent and aptitude that you have and anoints and enhances it, but he may take someone who's never had an education course in their whole life or even a public speaking course and anoint them with the gift of teaching and they will be just as effective as someone with a Ph.D. in education. And that's, that's hard for us to get a hand on. You know, we don't like that because it, it, it kind of insults you know, our, our intelligence in a sense. But God the Holy Spirit is able to do that. The spiritual gift of teaching is supernatural. And it may come to one who is well-trained, and it may come to someone who has no training, but it will have the same ministry and effect in the body of Christ. But, having said that, 
almost everyone can relate to these gifts. We all know what service is. We all know what teaching is. We all kind of know what exhortation is, encourage, lift up, kind of challenge, etc. We know what giving is. We know what leadership is. Uh, we know what mercy is. We know what helpers are. And we know what administrators are. And so we, we look at that list of gifts and we say, well, okay, I understand that pretty well. But then when we get over to these other nine gifts, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, healing, Effecting of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues, well, that's where we get into trouble. Because uh, these gifts have more of an obvious supernatural flavor to them. And many people, as they begin to look at these gifts, do not uh, understand them at all. Or they decide in their minds that they don't happen in the church anymore. Uh, because they haven't seen them in the church, and uh, or they haven't recognized them when they have seen them, and they're kind of relegated uh, to a, kind of a, a mystery zone. And I have to tell you that our commentaries, when it comes to spiritual gifts, are not a great deal of help. Um, and the reason for that is that there are not many scholarly commentators written, or commentaries written, by... Pentecostals, or Arminians. Most commentaries, scholarly commentaries, are written by Calvinists and Reformed theologians. Now, why do I, what, what difference does that make? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I do know that, uh, and by the way, what do you, say? you say, what does Arminianism have to do with um, Pentecostalism? Well, nearly all Pentecostals are Arminian in their theology. Not all Arminians are Pentecostal, but nearly all Pentecostals are Arminian. Um, And by the same token, very few Calvinists are Pentecostal. And so you you get that kind of thing going. And uh, the other thing is, this is my surmising, okay? But historic Calvinism and some of its uh, offshoots and some that aren't offshoots, for example, dispensationalism that came out of the Darby movement in England in the 19th century and eventually was made popular through Dallas Theological Seminary, those branches and divisions of theology with their scholasticism lend themselves more toward rationalism, using the human mind and reason to derive and extrapolate truth. It is difficult for people who think that way to grasp things that they cannot understand rationally. And believe me, you cannot understand the operation of the Holy Spirit rationally. He is not unreasonable in what he does, but when we're talking about operating in the supernatural realm, it does not fit well into a rationalistic worldview where everything can be explained in terms of what you can see and reason out. And so that makes it difficult. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. There are a few good commentaries that are written by Pentecostals, but they're hard to find. And then the other problem is, is that many times um, people are writing about these gifts that have no knowledge of them at all. They've never seen them in operation. 
They don't even have a conception of what the Bible's talking about. And so you take spiritual gift tests, or you read books on the spiritual gifts, and they start talking about word of wisdom, and they talk about just wisdom. You're a wise person. Or it starts talking about word of knowledge, and they just talk about people who are, who are well-learned and educated. Or it talks about discerning of spirits, and, and the book just talks about having discernment and, and being intuitive and, and perceptive. Not a clue what the Bible's really talking about, because they've never seen it, they don't, haven't experienced it, they don't see it in the Scriptures, and they don't understand how it works. So, it's a tough area to begin to ferret out the truth. And in preparation for that, I want to give you a little bit of my own background, because I think it's important in this case that you understand where I've been, so you can understand and put into context what I want to say. I was raised in a Southern Baptist church. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I was taught the Bible with a Schofield Study Bible, so I was a dispensationalist in my upbringing and training. And for those of you that don't have a clue what I'm talking about, uh, just let me summarize by saying most people who are dispensationalists believe that the the miraculous period of the New Testament has ended, and with the death of John and the completion of the canon, the, the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit doesn't do miracles anymore. God doesn't do miraculous things in the church. All the supernatural elements have stopped, and we live in an age where merely the gospel is preached and people get saved, and that's kind of about the end of it. Um. And so that dispensation is past. And growing up as a Southern Baptist, I have to confess that I was pretty much like those Christians or, or those uh, students that Paul ran into in the book of Acts when he said, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Um, until I was about 16 years of age, I didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Um, I, I knew it intellectually because I knew there was a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But the Spirit was an it to me. Those of you that read the King James Bible know that the Holy Spirit, the pronouns for the Holy Spirit are not he and him, but it, because it's neuter gender in the Greek. And so the pronouns take on the neuter form. So the King James translated everywhere that the Spirit was referred to, it was the pronoun. And I hardly even knew that he had a personality. And that's kind of how I grew up. But when I was a junior in high school, and I was in a very bad place in my life, and dealing with a very, very dark depression, and really struggling, I realized that I needed to give my life unreservedly to God if there was going to be any hope for me. I knew that he was my only hope. And so I totally devoted myself to God at a time when revival was breaking out all across the country. Those of you that are old enough to remember the early 70s, those were the days when the revival that began at Wheaton and Asbury began to spread all over the country. And there was a, a mighty revival among high school, college age, and young adults that was sweeping the nation. Those were the days of the coffee houses, Arthur Blessed, 
was carrying his cross across America, and uh, people out of the rock music industry were being converted, and heaven forbid I told this at the 8 o'clock service and they got a kick out of it, that's where contemporary Christian music got started. You know, all those rockers got saved. And they didn't know, you know, there was no place for them in the church. And so they started writing Christian rock music. And oh my goodness, nobody had ever heard of that. But um, that was when all those kinds of things were happening. It was a revival time. There was also something else happening simultaneously. In the late 60s, an Episcopalian had experienced a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit and had a charismatic or Pentecostal experience. And that began a wave of a charismatic renewal. It's called in church history Neo-Pentecostalism because Pentecostalism really began as a movement at Azusa Street in 1904 in California and swept the country as the Pentecostal movement. Well, here's a second wave in the late 1960s and early 1970s, known as Neo-Pentecostalism, when the Charismatic Movement was born, and many people called that the Latter Rain Movement, because that was the, the second outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the 20th century. And people from the strangest backgrounds were having supernatural experiences. I mean, we're talking Episcopalians and Methodists and some Catholics, and Anglicans. And it just got really weird, because here were people that were very stodgy in their liturgy, and all of a sudden, they're speaking in tongues, and waving their hands in the service, and praising God, and no one knows what to do. And so, that began to spill over into mainstream Protestantism, and the evangelical churches. So, here's Paul Martin, 1970, 71, 72, <clears throat> revived, transformed, at a time when there's keen interest in the Holy Spirit. And I grew up in a church that I hardly knew there was a Holy Spirit. And I got very curious. Because one of the things that had troubled me throughout my teen years was that I kept reading the book of Acts, and I kept looking at the church, and I said, my church doesn't look like that church. And I wanted my church to look like that church in the book of Acts. And I got hungry to understand that. And I began to pursue an understanding of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And that led me on a quest that lasted about three years, and I went from a very middle-of-the-road, well-organized, well-ordered, disciplined Southern Baptist worship service to some of the craziest storefront and house churches you've ever seen. I saw pew jumping, aisle dancing, swoon and slain in the Spirit, hand-waving, singing in the Spirit. That's when everybody sings in tongues and nobody knows the music, but it all kind of sounds together. Uh, I, I saw all kinds of prophetic utterances. I went to one church where the little, rotund, overweight preacher would get to preaching and foaming at the mouth and bouncing so high that I thought he was going to come over the pulpit. 
I have been in churches that claimed you could get glorified in the present body and walk through walls. I, I went to everything. I went to the Holy Spirit teaching mission down toward uh, Miami. I followed the writings of Derek Prince, and Bob Mumford, and Don Basham. Some of you know who I'm talking about, others of you may not. But uh, those of you that remember, I say that for a reason, because all of those guys went off the wire eventually. I mean, they were nuts then. It took a while to prove it. But they all went off the wire eventually. And in the process of following that, I saw and or experienced nearly all of the supernatural manifestations that you find in the Bible. And I'm here to collectively, to tell you that collectively, probably about 80 to 90 percent of it was pure, bogus, or demonic. Not very much of it was of God. And that was the thing that began to sober me, but that, that's for another story. There's a reason why today I'm in the Christian Missionary Alliance. And that reason is because I believe it best expresses a biblical view. And the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That He does not change. And that dispensationalism is not a correct way to look at the Scripture when it talks about experiencing the power and presence of God in your life. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no biblical basis for saying that any gift of the Spirit has ceased with the completion of the canon. The one proof text that everyone points to is in 1 Corinthians 13, at the end of the chapter, when the Apostle Paul says, Now I see in part, then I shall know, even as I am known. For when that which is perfect has come... There will be no need for any of these other things. And they say that's the Bible. When the Bible is written and finished, that we won't have any more need for any manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Friends, you can't read that chapter and come up with that with any sense of context. That's talking about the future when we're all in heaven with Jesus Christ. That's when I'm going to know even as I'm known. That's when now abide these three things, faith, hope, and love. But in the end, love will be the only one that remains because faith is realized, hope is experienced, but love remains. That's what that passage is talking about. Not the completion of the canon, but the coming of Jesus Christ and the glorious eternal future. There's not a passage in the Bible that you can point to to say that the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in, in any form will ever stop. But on the other hand, there is nothing in the Scripture that tells us that we are to preoccupy ourselves with the pursuit of supernatural manifestations or even to focus on the Holy Spirit. As important as He is in, her, in our lives, Jesus said, and He, when He comes, will speak of Me. He will glorify Me. He will lift Me up. I will be the one that becomes front and center and occupies your focus when the Holy Spirit comes. And all the gifts of the Spirit are there to exalt Jesus Christ and to promote His presence. We are never told to seek supernaturalism. We are told to pursue Jesus Christ. If you have died and your life is hid with Christ and God, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. We are encouraged to pursue Jesus Christ 
not supernatural revelation and so or supernatural manifestation. And so the Christian Missionary Alliance adopted a, a statement 80, 90 years ago regarding specifically the gift of tongues, but really applicable to all the spiritual gifts. Do not seek, do not forbid. Seek not, forbid not. Let God be God. Focus on Jesus. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is our Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, Coming King. Lift up Jesus Christ and magnify Him. And in the midst of that, understand that when John penned the last verse of the book of Revelation, and this book took on the stamp in the church of divine authority as the revelation from God, this is the only infallible guide that we have. No word of prophecy, no supernatural revelation, nothing else that may come to us today supersedes the authority of the Word of God. If you can't find it in the Bible, it ain't true. The Bible is the foundation of all that we believe. And so everything that happens in the church must be tested in the Scriptures. And, and the more weird it is, <laughs> the more supernatural it appears, the more important it is that we test it in the Scriptures in order to prove it's true. So I hope that you hear what I'm saying in terms of my background. I have been a flaming fundamentalist, turned flaming charismatic, <laughs> turned passionate biblical teacher. I, I want to walk the middle of the road. I want to be where the truth is and not on either extreme that's out of balance. And when I speak of these gifts to you, and this morning I'm just going to speak of two of them, but when I speak of them to you, I've seen the real thing, I've seen the fake thing, I've been in all these things, I've seen it all with my own eyes, up close and personal, I'm not writing from the out, or preaching from the outside looking in, I've been there, I've done that. I didn't buy the t-shirt, but I have been there and done that, and I know what I'm talking about. And I want to bring to you a balanced teaching from the Scripture. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12.8, the two that we're going to look at this morning is for, to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the effecting of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But it is the same Spirit who works all of these things, distributing to each one just as He wills. Word of wisdom. What is a word of wisdom? Do you remember when Peter went to the household of Cornelius? He saw this vision. The sheet comes down. It has all kinds of unclean animals in it. Things that Jews would never eat. And Peter hears this voice saying, Peter, rise up and eat. And he says, no, I'm not going to eat that. Well, you know the story. Eventually, Peter says, okay, Lord, 
whatever you said is not is okay, I accept. And so uh, about that time, there comes a knock on a door, and it says, Peter, will you come to the house of Cornelius because they want to hear about God? And Peter has been prepared, so he goes to a Gentile's house. This is the first time the gospel has gone specifically to a Gentile home. And as Peter goes to that home, he begins to explain the gospel. And what happens is, Cornelius and all of his Gentile friends are listening to the sermon. They come under conviction. They turn their lives over to Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit falls on them. And Peter is so uh, impressed with the power of God in their lives that the same thing happened to them in Cornelius' home that happened on the day of Pentecost, that Peter baptizes them. All is well and good, except he's got to go back to Jerusalem and explain his behavior to a bunch of Jews who didn't think the Samaritans could ever be saved, but were positive the Gentiles should not be included. And Peter's now not only eating in Cornelius' house, not only in Cornelius' house teaching, but he's baptized these people because they professed faith in Christ. And Peter goes back to hot water in Jerusalem. And he tries to explain his actions, and the Scripture says they're debating. So get the, get the picture. Here's all the church leaders. Here's Peter. And they're saying, Peter... Where is your head? You've lost your mind. God can't save Gentiles. What's the deal here? And finally, Peter says, look, I don't know about any of that stuff, but what I know is this. God told me to go. I went. I preached. And God did exactly for them the same thing that He did for us on the day of Pentecost. Now, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in detail and talk about tongues, which will be at this rate, in about three weeks. But um, at any rate, Peter said, they got the same thing we did. The Holy Spirit came on them. They had the very same experience and manifestation. They professed faith in Christ. What could I do? And at that point, James stands up and says, men and brothers, listen to me. Here's what I think we ought to do. And he gives an opinion that is immediately perceived by the group to be the solution from God to the problem. I believe James received in that moment a word of wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Here's how to solve the problem. And as James spoke that out, the rest of the group recognized the wisdom from God and they followed suit. I am told, and some of this I witnessed for myself in, in earlier days in the Christian and Missionary Alliance at our annual denominational meetings. Sometimes debate would be hot and heavy. And it's amazing how carnal a group of preachers can get when they're passionate over an issue and they're on opposite sides. It's kind of funny to watch. But anyway, the debate can truly get hot and heavy. And in the midst of that, I'm told that in those days there were times when Men like A.W. Tozer would finally stand to the microphone. Most of you are familiar with who he is. You may not know Bob Battles, but he had the same kind of impact. Keith Bailey. There were men in the Christian Missionary Alliance who were recognized 
for their godliness and their and their just the way God moved in their lives. And I would watch, I never saw Tozer because he died before I got there, but I would watch men like Keith Bailey or Bob Battles or whatever. The debate would be going on back and forth. And finally, the whole group would see one of these men go to the microphone. And the chairman would say something like, Dr. Bailey, microphone number four. And Keith Bailey was... In those days, he was overweight, considerably. <laughs> and he had this Santa Claus-looking face. And he was always chuckling. He just had this jovial spirit about him. And he's always laughing, but he, he was always serious when his, in his laughter. And he would kind of chuckle, and he would start to uh, lay forth the way he perceived things to be. And it was amazing because the whole council would recognize that God was speaking through him. And that he had the mind of Christ regarding how to settle the issue. Same was true for Bob Battles, who was not a a, a jovial, chuckling, overweight kind of guy, but he was slender and always in an appropriate suit and tie and very distinguished in his demeanor, but he would speak and same thing. And I'm told, you know, that when, when Dr. Tozer would rise to the microphone, that a hush would come over the group as Tozer would speak. And Tozer, by the way, was a man who, though he was editor of the Alliance magazine, a powerful preacher and the author of many books, did not have a formal education beyond the sixth grade. His doctorate was honorary. And uh, even though he had a library of thousands and thousands of volumes, his formal schooling ended about the sixth grade. But he was keenly educated in the Lord. He was a brilliant man, excellent grammarian. But he would stand and he would express himself, and people would recognize, not that Tozer or Bailey or Battles or somebody like that had spoken, they would recognize that God had spoken to the assembly. And it was almost like the debate was over. The question had been settled. We're going to have a business meeting tonight. And um, in the course of that, I don't know what the debate will be like. We're going, to, we're going to debate on two issues. We're going to talk about whether to lower the price of our land in order to make it more marketable. And we're going to talk about a recommendation that we not sell it in any event if, we cannot, if we're not assured that we can relocate and build debt-free for the price that we're being offered. Maybe there will be some debate about that. I don't know. But somewhere in the course of the meeting, it's possible that God will give wisdom to someone in the room. A word of wisdom in the moment for the situation. And when they speak, we will recognize that God has spoken. And... The interesting thing about that, and I want to share this with you because this is important in the public use of word of wisdom. I never heard one of those men say, God has spoken to me, and this is what we ought to do. You know, that's just plain rude. Because it means God hasn't talked to anybody else. It means that everybody else has got to be not hearing the Lord. They're wrong. 
it is true that God was speaking to them, but everyone recognized that it didn't have to be said. And there was openness and freedom still in the debate, but the debate was ended by the Holy Spirit, not the person claiming divine authority. That is so crucial to be careful that we do not come across, when we have the word of wisdom, as being the infallible final answer. God will give the word of wisdom. James stood up and said in the assembly, Brethren, it seems to me that... And when he was done speaking, the brothers said, It seems good to us in the Holy Spirit. They recognized that God was speaking through him because he had that word of wisdom. I've also seen the word of wisdom operate in counseling ministries where, you know, people are in the midst of a problem and a crisis and there doesn't seem to be a good solution. And in the midst of that, God gives insight that gives clear direction for the next step. Maybe to the counselor or if it's a group, maybe to someone in the group, a word of wisdom comes. You know... As I've been praying, it, it just feels to me like you ought to try thus and so. And, and immediately it's like, oh, that makes sense. I can see that. And God comes through with an answer. You know, when I first started pastoring, counseling problems were fairly straightforward. That was a whole nearly two generations ago, if you count a generation as 20 years. And people either came and said, you know, I have a problem with alcoholism, or I have a problem with pornography, or my marriage is in trouble, we can't agree on our finances, or, you know, the problems were relatively unidimensional. Today, people come... And they not only have an alcohol problem, they have a Coke problem, not the liquid, but the powder. They have financial problems, they have a gambling problem, they've been married a couple of times, they're living with someone they're not married to, they have about four kids, all from different relationships, and one of them is now pregnant, and um, they lost their job, and uh, they don't know what to do. And it's like you just look at that and you say, not only do you not know what to do, I don't know what to do. You're in such a mess, I don't know any way to sort this out. And in the midst of those times, God sometimes brings a word of wisdom. As God, the divine counselor, begins to unknot the twine that is so tangled in the knitting basket that you just want to throw it out, God knows just which thread to pull first to start unraveling the mess because He's the great healer. And sometimes a word of wisdom comes and says, You know what? I think here's where we ought to start. Why don't we this week do this. And all of a sudden it makes sense. And we realize that the wonderful counselor has showed up in the meeting and brought divine wisdom to the situation. People with the gift of the word of wisdom are people that receive impressions and guidance from the Lord 
that when spoken out is perceived as being the right solution for the next step. They didn't think it out. It's not because they have such intelligence in business or great financial skills. It's not because they, they are trained counselors and have studied psychology. It's because God the Holy Spirit has given a divine answer for a human problem that needs a supernatural solution. And God begins to unravel the work and, and pre- prepare for deliverance. And so, a word of wisdom is a supernatural insight from the Lord. And by the way, a word of wisdom can sometimes come from the most simple-minded people. You know, it's not the astute person out there that's been a smashing success in the world. Sometimes a person stands up in an assembly or in a group or in a prayer circle and they and they say, "You know, this is what I this is what God's put on my heart. This is what I feel." And you say, wow, this is God speaking. And you look at their life and you say, you don't practice this kind of stuff on a daily basis, you know. I would never expect that from you. That's because God chooses the simple things of the world to confound the wise. And God uses people sometimes that don't have wisdom in their natural selves to bring wisdom that is obviously from the Lord to a situation. Word of wisdom. The second one I want to touch on this morning is word of knowledge. And, uh, yeah, word of knowledge. And let me just share that a little bit. Like a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge is a supernatural revelation that comes from the Holy Spirit to someone who has not learned it or had the opportunity to investigate it. You remember when Jesus was at the well with the Samaritan woman and he said uh, to her, go call your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you have rightly said you don't have a husband because the fact of the matter is you have had five husbands and the man that you're now living with you're not married to. And after a while, when she went back to the village to tell everyone, you know what they, you know what she said? Come meet a man who has told me everything I've ever done. Now, Jesus didn't tell her everything she'd ever done, but he really hit the nail on the head with some of the big ones, you know? And, and she was astounded. And I know your first answer to me is going to be, yeah, but he was God. But I want to remind you, that Jesus on this planet, as a man, operated as a man filled with the Spirit, not in His deity. He operated in His humanity, filled with the Spirit of God, as an example to us. And I bring you to Peter in the book of Acts, where the same thing happened. When Ananias and Sapphira had conspired to lie to the church and keep back some of the sale price of the land, But they wanted to come give a partial contribution and then be put on the benevolent rolls, kind of double dipping. And they came to Peter and Ananias comes in and says, Peter, my wife and I sold our property. Here is the whole price. Put us on the benevolent rolls. And Peter looked at him and said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit 
For you have not lied to men, but to God, in that you have kept back some of the price of the land. Now, was Peter hanging out outside their kitchen window when they were having this discussion? No. The Holy Spirit told him in that moment what was going on, and he knew it. And he confronted them, and as a consequence, their lie was exposed, and unfortunately, they both dropped dead. But it certainly made an impression on the church that it is not a good thing to publicly lie to the Holy Spirit. And it cost them their lives. And and that brings me to a point that I want to say is that with the word of knowledge, sometimes God gives information in a supernatural way that you would have no other way of knowing. It comes to you from the Holy Spirit. You must be careful with this gift. Remember that all the gifts of the Spirit are under the control of the individual. That's number one. Even though they're Holy Spirit given, they're given to you in a volitional way. Let me just ratchet back and give you a quick window of an example during the ministry of John Wesley in the Great Awakening. Being slain in the Spirit is nothing new. It's happened throughout church history. And during the Whitfield and Wesleyan revivals in the Great Awakening, it became popular to get slain in the Spirit and wriggle around and writhe in the aisle. And you can imagine how distracting that was, especially to Puritan England. You know, to have people, you know, women in the floor kicking their feet around and whatever. It was just, it was just disastrous. Distracted everybody. <clears throat> and so John Wesley finally came to a meeting because every time it happened, the meeting got off track. And John Wesley, with the wisdom of Gamaliel, came to a meeting and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I don't want another person to fall out of their seat into the floor in this meeting. This is over. His theory was, if God was doing it, he couldn't stop it. But if they were doing it out of some emotional workup, that would put an end to it. There were no more instances of being slain in the Spirit in Wesley's meeting. But the revival continued. The work of God went on, even though the nonsense was stopped. So I say that to say that you can have the Holy Spirit prompting you and act out in a totally carnal and foolish way. The fruit of the Holy Spirit must constrain your life with wisdom and discipline in how you use the gifts. So when you may receive a word of knowledge, it's not always the best thing to jump up from your chair and say, Ooh, ooh, God just told me something. I want everybody to know. So-and-so over here is embezzling at their work. It's like, oh man, that just ruins a meeting. Okay? So-and-so might be embezzling. Maybe it came from the Holy Spirit. Maybe it came from a demon. Maybe they work with so-and-so and found out and they're just using the spiritual gift venue to... There's all kinds of things. During the 1857-58 prayer revival that 
spread throughout this country and over into England as well, started in New York in noonday prayer meetings where people would take their lunch hour and go to pray. The revival became so powerful, it was called the prayer revival because it just started in prayer meetings held at the noontime. The revival became so powerful that people testified that got saved on ships coming into New York Harbor that as far as five miles out from New York City, the Holy Spirit would come upon the, the whole ship and people would come under conviction and they would be falling down on their faces on deck asking for someone to explain to them how to be saved. It was that kind of power. And it started out in a prayer meeting in New York City for, for business people. And in one of these prayer meetings, and this is written in a book about the history, in one of these prayer meetings, a woman came into the meeting, and in all revivals there is confession of sin and repentance. Christians getting right with God. That happens in all revivals. It's one thing when you're confessing your sin. It's something else when somebody else is confessing your sin. And this woman came into the meeting and she began to, in her praying, she would begin to reveal sins that other people in the room were committing. Yikes. What do you think that does to a prayer meeting? If you've been playing poker with the boys in the back room, illegally, are you going to go to the prayer meeting next week? What do you think? Probably not. If you do show up at the prayer meeting, how are you going to feel? Every time you go, this woman's here telling everybody's dirty laundry. How are you going to feel? Scared, right? I mean, just think about it. Just... just Focus with me a minute. What kind of prayer meeting is that going to turn into? A sparsely attended one where people that do show up are in fear and trembling. Finally, finally the leadership got to praying about this lady because it seemed like she was, she was nailing people. And they began to pray about it and they discerned that she was speaking by a demon whose purpose was to destroy the prayer meeting. It was not building people up. It was not bringing them under godly conviction. It was scaring the life out of them. The prayer meeting was breaking down. They were staying away. The revival, in a sense, was being undermined. And so they confronted her and dealt with the demonic spirit and dealt with what was going on, and that business stopped. And the revival resurged in the midst of it. Because God's goal is always to build up, to encourage, to restore, to heal. God wants to promote growth within the family of God, not tear people down. And public display of other people's failings is not a good thing. Unless God is truly in it. And, and, and usually God does not work that way. The reason he did that with Ananias and Sapphira is because they had publicly declared in the presence of all the people there their lie, and God dealt with their lie in a public way. And basically, the rules of sharing a word of knowledge are the same as the rules of personal confession. 
If only you and one other person know it, just talk to that other person. If only you and a small group know it, talk about the group that's been affected. If the whole church knows it, then confess to the church. But otherwise, keep your circle of confession the same size as the audience of awareness. If you have a word of knowledge, you need to be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit wants you to do with it. He may just want you to pray. He may be giving you insight that He wants you to share. I have seen this gift operate in in my own life most frequently in counseling and in my responsibility on the licensing and ordaining council at the district level where we're interviewing people or we're conducting uh, interviews and investigations for, for discipline. And let me give you an example from many years ago, different state, different time, nobody would ever know of how God uses this. I was counseling with a, with a uh, young woman in her late 20s who was the daughter of an Assembly of God pastor. And she had come to me for marriage counseling because her marriage was coming apart. And, and she didn't know what to do, and it was going from bad to worse, and she really needed some help. And her life, she was terribly depressed. She was struggling with, with despair, and she was just having a very hard time. And in the midst of that, it was about the second session. She's talking to me, and I'm talking with her, and all of a sudden, this word comes into my mind, this thought comes into my mind, she has had an abortion. And that is the underlying source of her guilt, which is damaging her life. Well, you don't just announce that kind of thing to people. You know, and you, and you don't just say, Sister, I've had a word from God. You've had an abortion. That just, there's no love there. There's no sensitivity there. There's no wiggle room. It's, that's a horrible way to go about that. And so the first thing I did was I checked. I said, she's talking, we're having a conversation, I'm having a conversation this way. And I said, God, is this something, I mean, what am I supposed to do with this? She, she has had an abortion, and this is the source of her trouble. So I said, okay, I'll ask her. So the session went on for a little bit, and finally there came an appropriate time, and I said to her, could I ask you a question? I said, I, I could be wrong, but I just want to ask you a question. And, and I'm always careful to preface this kind of thing that way because I could be wrong. And I also want to give the person an opportunity to deal with it. And so I said, I could be wrong, but I, I want to ask you, is there any chance that you've ever had an abortion? And she just this look of shock came over her face and she began to weep. And after a few minutes, she composed herself and she said, I would never, ever have told you that. But she said, I've had five abortions. And she said, I struggle with the guilt of it every day of my life. I would never have told you that. And as it came out, she had lived such a promiscuous life. She had been so off the chart, off the wall in her behavior, 
that she had gotten pregnant and terminated the pregnancies five different times before she met and married the man she was married to. And he knew nothing of this history. And here was the root of the issue where she needed to get that clean with God before she could go on for healing in her life. God sometimes does that in a healing environment where He wants to minister and bring correction and and restoration. But friends, there is a false gift of the word of knowledge. I've already mentioned to you the demonic side. Sometimes demons are involved in that kind of thing. And also sometimes human intuition is mistaken for a word of knowledge. Where people think that they know something because they're perceptive. I don't know if you've read or know anything about the book Blink that has come out on the market not too long back. But it's, it's a secular book about how we make snap judgments based on intuition and perception that really is an accumulation of learned and perceived things. There's a new program coming out this fall called The Mentalist. I haven't watched the program. I don't even know if it's airing yet, but I've seen the ads. And it's talking about that same thing, about subconscious perception of things that other people just ignore. And some people are good at picking that up. And they have what we call intuition. Sometimes their intuition is well developed. Sometimes they are very perceptive based on the signals they're reading. Sometimes they're dead wrong. Sometimes they're out to lunch entirely. And many times in the church they get that confused with word of knowledge or discernment. And there is no gift of discernment, by the way. I'll get there next week. It's discerning of spirits. But they say, I have the gift of discernment. There is no gift of discernment. But at any rate, they get this confused. And now they're relying on this human intuition, thinking that they're getting messages from God. When all they have is an overactive imagination, or they have a sense of perception that is based on the way they view the world. And human intuition can be colored by a lot of things, including your culture and including your own background and your own worldview. People who are intuitive nonetheless filter that intuition through their own cultural lens. They see things the way they expect to see them and not necessarily the way they are. In the church, the gift of word of knowledge is always constructive, always exalting to Jesus, always designed for information or healing or restoration that will benefit the person or the body. And if you happen to have that gift, I want to encourage you that if you get information that you think is about other people, I want to encourage you that the best way to use that is to go to that person directly and talk to them. Sometimes God just wants you to pray over it. That's the only reason you know, is to pray. Sometimes He wants you to go and talk to someone. And if you go and talk to them, keep it between you and them. Because you could be wrong. You may not have heard the Holy Spirit. You could be wrong. And it's important to to keep that same 
practice that you would do with any other kind of confrontation. That you go in private, and you go one-on-one, and you give that person the opportunity to respond. Unless somebody's done something publicly and openly like Ananias. A word of knowledge is a blessing when it's used properly, but it's a gift that is subject to abuse. Well, Father, we have looked at two of the ways that your Holy Spirit can minister through us. We pray that we would be wise people, filled with the fruit of the Spirit, governed by love, given great sensitivity to one another in the ministry of your power and presence among us. And we pray this morning that you would just lead us along in our study and understanding of spiritual gifts. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.